Well, I do trust you've had a had a wonderful week. It's been it's been good. We enjoyed um, Friday evening. I was reminded Friday evening that there are a lot of kids in family life. I mean, when you're here, it's like it's peaceful, quiet. We're talking. Woo! It's like wow, that gym was full of of children. A lot of fun. So that was that was a blessing blessing to see and hear. Um, yesterday, seeing quite a few people went to the Yoder farm for the first time. I don't know. Can't, it's hard to say. I got a senior discount. <laughs> I mean, who gives who gives a fifty and above discount? The insulting part is I didn't have to ask for it. Sitting there's like really? Jeff's just like me, there's some It's like no She didn't even yeah, she didn't ask for ID or nothing, just Yeah. Just gave it gave it right there. So it was a good, had a fun time, didn't get too lost in that maze, in that corn maze, and so enjoyed our time there. It's been, it's been a good week, and, you know, I think about Phil was saying about taking care of and just watching over a family, about his mother, and just, um, you know, we've, um, we're about ready to, Jane's mom is staying with her sister, she's about ready to join us again here in the next couple of weeks, and uh, the blessing is having a, a, a mother-in-law who knows the Lord, and who talks that way past week she's sister's feeding her and gives her a meal and and she asked her how this meal my mother-in-law says it was good you go ahead and bury me now <laughs> like, like okay all right i'm not sure she meant i could die and go to heaven now or what but she constantly talks about i'm ready to go you know so let's go ahead and look at second corinthians um chapter 2 verse 12. You know, one thing that's, that's beautiful about the Word of God is as, as you dig in the Word, the deeper you go, the more detailed it gets, the more clear and congruent it is. You don't, you don't get more confused the more you know about the Word. The more you know about the Word, the, the more it just makes sense. It all fits together. It's just the beauty of, wow, everything is like these, these pieces of puzzle that come fitting together. And as you walk through these verses here... Now, the, the, well, the other part of that, I should say, though, is that as you keep digging dip, deeper, at some point you find yourself in, way down, you know, okay, I need to come back out of here and, and to where it makes sense with, with the whole as well. So I want to balance that with uh, digging into one aspect of what he says here and, and at the same time keep, keep us moving in the text. We're looking at verses 12 to the end of, of chapter 2. There are three big things that came out of this this little section for me here, and I was really just uh, encouraged by. I want us to, to look at that. First, we'll see at the, the narrative, because he comes back in verse 12. He comes back to our, our narrative in verse in verse 12. And then he speaks to his weakness. Now, not all commentators agree exactly on the significance of what he's saying here, but we're going to walk through what he says in verse 12 and 13, and seeing how God works through what he describes as an open door. And then the, the key piece that really just blew my mind is talking about the triumphal procession in verse 14, uh, walking through the significance of that. And, and I'll read 
one commentator on that just really opens up our mind what, what Paul is referring to. Because what's important as you're reading the text, right, everybody wants to know, okay, what, we should know what, the, what is the author saying. Well, to understand what he's saying is what are they hearing? So what is, what are the, what's the audience hearing when he's referencing, when he's talking these things? What are they hearing? That helps us understand what he's trying to, trying to communicate. It's not me taking some kind of lofty idea and going to the text and say, oh, that, yeah, that, that text was supported, this text was supported, and kind of piecemealing it together. You walk through this, and you're thinking, okay, here's, here's where they're living. That's why we took some time to understand what they're going through through Corinth. Took some time to understand what kind of city it was, what they were experiencing. Then when he's talking to them, okay, this makes sense. Uh, and and this, really, this really where a lot of color comes to the text is, is understanding that. So let's read together verses 12 through the end of this chapter. So he gets back. He comes back to his narrative. We have an overall narrative here, which is his relationship to the Corinthian church. A little conflictual, a little painful. Talked about the painful letter I had to write. I had to come back and forth. They were upset that he didn't come back when he said he was going to come back. So there's that relationship in the midst of that. We, he, of course, he does a lot of teaching, uh, lays a foundation for a lot of teaching as well. So verse 12, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Titus is going to be instrumental here throughout this whole narrative of, of um, him using Titus to comfort them and get news back from the church as well. So he said, I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Wow, just, just that. You could, reach, you could preach on that term he uses here. We're not peddlers of God's word. I, he just, that's so powerful. I, I think we might get to that today. Hopefully we will. Peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in, in Christ. So, Bring us, bring us back a little bit to our, our context here. <clears throat> he sets the narrative. Um, Paul had already been to Troas before. Is from If you remember our, our map roughly, he's at Ephesus in Asia Minor. He goes up to Troas and goes across to Macedonia, then back down to Corinth. So that's kind of the way he travels around here. So he goes up to Troas. He's been to Troas before. He speaks, he addresses that in Acts chapter 16. It's from Troas that he has a Macedonian call. And, um, and from here, so he's, he's going to talk about <clears throat> coming to Troas. We Clearly, he's, he's looking for Titus. Part of what we see here is the difficulty. You know, in our days, text message, where are you? Would have been easy. In those days, they're traveling, uh, trying to cross paths, trying to meet up with Titus, not only so he could hear from them, but also from the news from Corinth, but also so he could use Titus to go back and comfort them. So my spirit, he said, was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So he's he's trying to cross paths, trying to meet up with 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 Titus here. To understand a little bit about this, let's, let's jump over to chapter 7, <clears throat> where he kind of completes the narrative. In other words, the first seven chapters give us the narrative. Eight and nine will address... He'll, sp- he'll speak to some of the abundance of given in these churches. So he skips, he jumps across narratives in, in chapter 8. Then at the end, he'll come back to <clears throat> talking about those who have not yet repented. But he's in chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 5, 
He says, for even when we came to Macedonia, so remember Troas, I'm not at rest, Titus is not here, so he's going to go from Troas over to Macedonia. He says, uh, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies were, had, no, had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. It's amazing, right? Here's Paul speaking, right? Fighting from without, fears from within. I mean, this is what he's experiencing. It's not this, this bullish, aggressive, uh, you know, conquer the hill type of, you know, Paul's just expressing his, and we talk about how this book, this, this letter is, is, is very charged with emotion. So he describes it here, fighting from without, fear from within, verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which, which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So we have the, the narrative kind of complete, is com- that's our completed thought of the narrative here. He meets up with Titus, uh, <clears throat> talks about the comfort that he comforted us by the coming of Titus. Of course, he's waiting for the good news from Corinth about how, they, you know, Paul's concerned. You know, he wrote a harsh letter. He's concerned about the relationship with the believers. All that really is indicative of his love and passion for the people. We saw that already earlier in this chapter. It's just indicative of, boy, he's just burdened for the people. He's just burdened for the church. I mean, he's losing sleep over it. He gets uh, uh, not, he's not at rest. I'm not going to use the word anxious. He's not using that word here, but he's not at rest over it. And so you see that, that just that strong shepherd heart for his church and even when we talked about this already but when he had to rebuke the church at large for the grieving part of how they're going to respond to it you know and i don't want to write that letter again to you and, and just seeing that that emotion that emotion play out here so let's speak to to two things one and i'm going to come back to the idea of what it, what he means by even though an, a door was open for me when i first read this what was the, the contrast that I found difficult, verse 12 and 13, is that he's talking about a door that's open for me in the Lord. But, verse 13, he says what? But my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. So he says on one hand, he said the Lord opened the door for me to go to Troas, but my spirit was not at rest. And, it, and, and kind of digging a little bit deeper what he, what he, means, what he means by that. When he talks in verse 12, he goes, even though... Some commentators describe Paul admitting as a sign of weakness. He says, even though the Lord opened the door for me, I wasn't at rest. What's he not at rest about? Well, he's, he's consumed with worrying about the church by Corinth. That's why he's waiting for Titus. He wants to hear the news. He hadn't heard it yet. So he, he's, he's consumed with this concern for the church. And instead of taking advantage in the situation of the open door God gave him, his concern and worry and burden for the church did not leave him at rest, and he left there. So this is, not a, this is not him saying, well, God opened the door, but you know, I'm just going to move on, and, and I wasn't at rest, and the, like the, you know, the Spirit directed me elsewhere. You know, he said, I, in my own heart, wasn't at rest, and he moved on. Really, it's more of an admonition of his own weakness here, that though God had opened the door, he was so worried and concerned that he could not and did not avail himself of that opportunity and, and moved on from there. So Bonhoeffer says this about 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 Paul's situation here. He says, our mistakes, put it here, our mistakes and our weaknesses or our errors are not without purpose. Beauty says this a little bit later in, in one of his commentators, Bonhoeffer says, God handles both equally and sovereignly. In other words, in a moment of weakness, because reality, Paul probably should have availed himself of the open door God gave him, but he was consumed with another problem that he should have at that point 
not been consumed with and let that rest, but he couldn't. And the description here is just simply the beauty of knowing that God handles both my weaknesses and he handles both my boldness and my obedience. He handles those both equally and sovereignly. That's, and that's a beautiful thing. We'll talk about the open door and, and even how that, that impacts our view of ministry and missions and what does an open door mean and how do we, how do we identify open doors and how, how, do we, how do we follow in obedience with that. But then he goes in, in, in the second part here, right? My spirit was not at rest. So we see later on that his spirit was at rest when finally he meets up with Tylus. He gets the good news. Okay, now, okay, well, now I can breathe again. Uh, and that, that is restored later on through Titus with the Corinthians, but when, when the Lord comforts him with that, with that later. But in this moment here, there's, there's this uh, open opportunity, open door, but Paul's response, really probably a response in, in a weakness where he did not avail himself of, of what the Lord uh, opened the opportunity there for. Let me see if I have this on my next. Okay, so, so let me come back now to this figure of speech that he uses with the, with the open door. I say this because a lot of times we, we do use, and I think it's very helpful here. I think it's very helpful ministry overall. This really helps, even as I was reading through this, it's really a lot of, Ministry missions opportunities for me are found and seek in God's providential hand and God's providential working. God had providentially opened the door for him to go to Troas and uh, and exercise the ministry. He talks right in the first part of the verse. In, in the first part of our verse, he says, when I came to Troas, what? To preach the gospel of Christ. As a matter of fact, he, he ends with the sufficiency of the gospel in this little section as well. But he is going there to preach the gospel of Christ. God had opened him the opportunity to, to, to do so. First, in looking at the, uh, the figure of speech that he, he uses here, uh, that, of course, of an open door. You know, God ultimately opens doors and closes doors. I know we use that analogy a lot, but he uses it here in, in a way that we can, we can look at what God was doing and opening that for him, right? I, as I mentioned, for me, it's, it's significant in terms of exercising ministry. It is far too easy for us to to force ourselves into a ministry situation. In other words, we have desires, we have passions, and we try to make something happen. And the beauty of seeing that is that discerning what the Lord is doing and him discerning that the Lord provided an open opportunity for him to go to Troas. And for us, understanding the importance of an open opportunity and the wisdom on the hand of also committing our ways to the Lord in, in that way. So I put down the first question here just as a, as a food for thought for us. You know, what are some ways God, or we can see, or what are some ways even Paul can see? What's some providential, how do you see God's providential hand? How does he see an open door? He doesn't describe it here. He doesn't explain it here. What, what could be something that he should look for, that perhaps we should look for, even on the ministry perspective, that is the, um, that speaks to God opening a door of opportunity for the gospel here specifically. What would be some, some, some thoughts on that you would have? What would you see in that? Through your uh, faith-filled effort, there's a, either success, and success not measured by a number, but people responding. If you talk about ministry or preaching of the word, people responding appropriately to that word as opposed to rejecting that word, you know, Paul being accepted or rejected. 
So the on one hand, the response, and again, we know what we mean by that. We don't mean success in numbers, but faithfulness to to a ministry, being faithful in the front end to the ministry. But how do you know if how do you know if this is an opportunity that you should avail yourself of, or Judy? Sometimes it comes to the form of, of, of an invitation. Perhaps you received a delegation, someone who came down from Troas, F says, hey, we need you up here. Can you come help us? There's, there's an, an open opportunity. In ministry, I've seen this over and over. I mean, you're on the field, and you don't really know what opportunities there are, but you're serving there. And if you know, I, I could have, at one point, I could list five, six, seven, eight, not churches, well, there's, they're churches, but they have no, no one to lead them, no one to teach them. And they're like, hey, we're looking for, do you know anybody that can come and help us? Because we, we need a teacher, we need a preacher. And that, that providential hand where you're, God's introducing you to the right people and introducing you to what he's doing faithfully uh, in another place, in another location. What are some other things? Would it promote biblical truth over just highlighting the man? Right. Is, ideas, yeah. is this right? Is this promoting biblical truth? Uh, again, his, his drive in the beginning is what? Is the proclamation of the gospel. Is this, a, is this somebody because, oh, we hear you're famous and we want you to come? And, or is this a, a desire to grow in truth, lay that right foundation? One thing I put down is perhaps, perhaps one thing that is helpful is distinguishing something that only God can do, right? Meaning a, an opportunity that clearly you did not either – I'm not saying you shouldn't search it out because I think there's a rightful place to, 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 to search – but something that distinguishing something that wow God's providential hand on that now for me Michael and May May is, is is a perfect example of that because we were praying for China but we didn't know what open door was there for for them in China there are different things that were there but things that we didn't feel necessarily fit the proper what we desired for the gospel for the family and next thing you know they were introduced to a couple who's doing biblical counseling and Steve and Katie. Next, you know, they're here. They spend 10 months with us here or six months with us here. And they got this ministry in China. We're tied to every. Then all of a sudden, all these pieces start falling in place that are totally out of our control. But they, they fit exactly biblically what we're searching. There's a biblical church with Chinese elders needing help to be trained. Michael's got the right gifts and abilities. It fits the right. It fits exactly his skill set. What he's trying to do. Next thing you know, there's a job opportunity. He gets a job. He gets housing. He gets the visa. And next thing you know, all these things kind of just fall into place. But what it takes in the front end is one is is faithfulness to ministry. Now, right? It's it's not Michael sitting on the sidelines waiting for for this revelation from God or this you know this little de soleil, you know this this sun. Beaming, oh, I uh, felt no. It's faithfully serving here, prayerfully serving here, and as you know, this opportunity fits. That is a biblical model. Here's what we we often do: we try to force, uh, we force a situation, which means, well, this is not really what we're looking for. It's not really a biblical model. It's not really, but, but, and we, we kind of walk into it with a but, and, uh, and and we discover that really what we're trying to do, we're trying to do something that we're we're pursuing. And we're not really um, identifying an open opportunity that God is, is providing. It's a great, it really is a great approach to missions to ask ourselves what. It amazes me. I've talked to many people who get involved in missions and they want to go to a certain place, a certain location, do things. Maybe, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being 
I'm not mocking this at all, but they 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 were touched by a a trip they went on, or they were touched by some pictures, or they touched by a National Geographic uh, article. They were touched by something, and and they just want to go, and they don't and they don't even ask themselves what is God doing here. They're not even they're not even processing by saying what what is God doing that He wants me to be a part of. And because when you do it that way, you're going to be looking for a biblical pattern. You're going to be looking for a a solid biblical foundation, you know. Uh, truth and you're going to build on that you're not going to compromise that because for the sake of making sure i get there or making sure that you know i'm fulfilling some kind of uh desire to do so so it's really a great a great approach to to ministry and even even for us you know my parents lived in a different generation where they didn't they couldn't avail themselves of some of the things that we could avail ourselves of today so they they flew blind in a lot of areas, but one thing I, I just I just miss some parts that we can't really we can't go back in time, thankfully. But my my father was describing how when they traveled in missions, how they um, they didn't have credit cards, and so you don't have credit cards. What do you have? What do you do when you need money? <laughs> you don't go to Mastercard, or Visa. You go to God. He's like, Lord, I need. And how many how many missionary accounts? From the back in the day, our missionaries who were praying God would provide to travel and be in meetings and get back. And now, one missionary, he probably didn't do the right thing. His heart probably wasn't in the right place. But he said at the end of a meeting, uh, he didn't get a love offering, which can, can happen. I've never had that happen, but can happen. And so he's like, man, he's like, no, I go back now. So he says, I went to the car, opened the gas tank, says, you're welcome. I was like, I don't know, that probably wasn't, you know, Pastor, thank you for coming. I think he got his point across, but it probably wasn't the healthiest point. But this generation, we don't experience that. Why? Because we have credit cards. And here's the reason why I say that. Credit cards blur, can blur what God is doing and can, can make it a little more difficult to identify God's hand. My parents experienced a lot more of God's blessing by opening the right doors and providing in that way than what we could have experienced through through our means, and so just as a, no, just it, it's not it's not a a knock on on credit. It's just that I don't know if our are, are, are we pursuing understanding what God is doing and how to respond to that, and a lot more sensitive to God's leading than we are just pursuing and running forward and making it happen, whatever whatever means we have. Um, I was just saying, you and I have talked about this, but people. When they're moved, the emotion we call it emotionally went instead of biblically sent. Yeah. And so, like Michael and Mamie were biblically sent, yeah. their emotions weren't leading them apart from the church, but was through the church. So I think that's an important issue that a lot of people miss. I feel like I need to do this, or I feel like I want to do that, but they don't ask any elder or any any church member to you know support them in that and get some feedback. So a lot of people emotionally. Lead. We call it went versus sent, and that's a key factor to missions in my mind. Yeah, when your emotions get in the mix of it and they're not under under the authority of God's word, then yeah. then you tend to compromise for the sake of now the objective becomes what I want to accomplish, no longer fulfill what God wants me to fulfill, and those two things become at odds here. A lot of times, the confusion comes from you know identifying an open door, comes from the hardships that follow. You know, 
he had an open op- Paul had an open opportunity here, an open door, as he indicates. But when he got there, he got sidetracked by what his his disappointment and not seeing Titus and not seeing Titus meaning he didn't get a report of how the church was going. So he kept on moving instead of fulfilling what God wanted him to do there. Now I don't want to read more into it than that, but just how we need to be sensitive to what God's doing and, and fulfill that task. I think the first part is just really praying that God would would open those opportunities for us and us being being sensitive to it. He walks into verse 14. Verse 14, he talks about the triumphal procession. Verse, verse 14, he goes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads a fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, if you were to read this without much historical knowledge or historical context, you just think, well, we're, we're triumphant in Christ and the triumph of Christ. And there's some good aspects of that. I just think, well, you know, he leads us in triumph, leads us in victory. But there is something much bigger than that because he's using a metaphor here. And I'm going to walk through. It's going to take me just a second to read through this. But I want to do this because it just um, helps me really understand the picture that he's describing. Because it's really a loaded statement. <clears throat> First order of business is, okay, understand what he means by that. What does it mean to, to walk into a, a, you know, that he uh, leads us in triumphal procession? Uh, and what did the Corinthians understand by this, this metaphor that he's, he's using? So first of all, we remember, right, Corinth is a city established by Julius, Julius Caesar, a city of colonized Roman soldiers, many freedmen, many former slaves. And a Roman triumphal procession was all too familiar to them. They understand exactly what it means to walk into a triumphal procession. The Romans made a big deal out of it. I think there's over 350 or so recorded in a history of details of what it means. So they understood very well, and most of them as former slaves or soldiers had witnessed a, a number of them. Following a, a military victory, a Roman general would return home to parade through the streets with the conquering soldiers, wreaths would, would grace the heads of the victors, Captors would march. Many of them would march their, to their execution. Incense would be offered by the Romans to their gods as an offering and a sweet smell of, of victory. So, since I do have Kevin here, I didn't have him last week, you know, the Ark of Triumph is the most famous Ark, the French Ark of Triumph. I don't think the Irish have any Arcs. You guys have any Arcs? Uh, Napoleon... In 1806, to celebrate the Battle of Austerlitz and his victory, it took about 30 years to build the Arc of Triumph. Of course, the Germans took advantage of it, and they marched down the Champs-Élysées, marched down the Champs-Élysées uh, 100 years later, uh, celebrating their victory. But they built these, these massive arcs to celebrate these major battles, major, major victories, uh, and the one in Paris was built by Napoleon to celebrate his, his, his victories. Um, here's what Scott Hoffman says, and this is going to take me just a minute. I'm going to read this, his comment on it, and this gives you the full picture of what his comment is on these Roman uh, triumphal process, processions. He says this. He said, the, the triumphal procession was a lavish parade conducted in Rome to celebrate great victories and significant military campaigns. Everybody in the Roman Empire knew about these parades, which were represented on the Roman arches, like the Ark of Titus. The Ark of Titus, we talked about last week. I've got a picture here. We'll, maybe we'll get to it. But Ark of Titus basically is, uh, gives a picture of uh, the triumphal over Jerusalem, and they're taking back the temple utensils from there back to Rome. 
Everybody in the Roman Empire knew about these parades. It says uh, coins, statues, medallions, paintings, not to mention approximately 350 triumphal accounts recorded in ancient literature. These were ostentatious celebrations filled with valiant soldiers, the spoils of war, and the most theatrical pomp and circumstances Rome could muster. Moreover, the triumphal procession demonstrated Rome's prowess as the victor, not only by parading the spoils of war, but also by leading in triumph the most important leaders and intimidating warriors of the enemy, now presented as conquered slaves. So they, in these triumphal processions, they had all the spoils of war. Part of the day, the spoils of war included what? Well, included slaves, included the, you know, the, those, the, the conquered army and generals. The highest honor any Roman Caesar or general could receive I'll put these two here. This is two paintings or two drawings, rather, of these processions. He said the highest honor of any Roman Caesar or general could receive would be to lead one of these parades. Conversely, to be led as a prisoner in such a triumphal procession signaled one's utter defeat. He said the role of, these, of those led in triumph was to reveal the glory of the one who had conquered them. So those who are following as the conquered ones, the reason why they're there is to magnify the glory, to reveal the glory of the one that conquered them, ultimately through their public execution and death. Not all were executed, but uh, many were executed as the finality of this grand procession. At the end of the parade... The Romans publicly slaughtered as a sacrifice to their gods those prisoners who had been led in procession, or at least a representative sample of those, selling the rest into slavery. And though it's a gruesome thought to us, what better way for them to magnify one's victory while at the same time offering a sacrifice of gratitude to the gods than to kill publicly the leaders and the most valiant of the vanquished warriors as a final act of triumph over them. So he describes what was well known to the Corinthians, what was well known to the church at large then is what a triumphal procession means. So when he uses these terms, it means something way more to them than it does means to us. And it's modeled after that. Now with a metaphor, you want to be careful not to go into every weeds of every picture because the, the, the concept and the picture is there without going into the weeds of uh, trying to make everything an, an analogy. The second part of this picture here, and the reason why I'm, I'm showing this one is, is, is the end of the, of the procession. And at the end of the procession, you have the fragrances that are uh, burnt as an offerings, sweet smelling to their gods. Of course, that's why he picks up on here. Right? This whole analogy, this whole picture is developed here in these two verses. So, just as a, as a I think I made one question here. Here's another commentator he says here. So to be clear, he points out the Apostle Paul is the direct object, not the subject in this verse, right? He says it is God who in Christ who leads us, which means he's, he's not saying I'm the one leading this triumphal procession. I'm being led by God in this triumphal procession. He's leading us. What is, well, so in other words... Paul is not the one leading the triumphal procession. He is the one being led as the conquered slave in this triumphal procession. Can you imagine what, imagine first of all what, as, a, as, as Romans, I'm saying as, as Corinthians rather, their experience of the triumphal processions 
And Paul is saying, yes, I am following. I've been conquered. I'm the conquered slave. Laying my life down before God. That's the picture they're seeing. That's the... And, and for us to take a few minutes to read about it is to understand the, the, the full color that he's trying to, to bring out here. We're not, we're not us victoriously, triumphantly marching. We're the conquered slaves that are following God, who him is leading in victory. And we're laying down our lives as a sweet aroma to him. Uh, I just think that that, that picture, you could, you could ponder that picture and as, if you were to go back and read the historical accounts of the triumphal processions and uh, see that, you could just really see how he brings that out in, in this passage. God conquered Paul. God conquered Paul on the road to Damascus. And now he's leading him into this triumphal procession as a slave of Christ. And in order for Paul to display the majesty and power and glory of God, he does that by what? By dying to self. And allowing God to to reign, uh, and, and Paul's pointing out that what he is enduring as a suffering servant is the very thing God is using to display His Majesty. And God continually leads Paul to death so that Christ might live. He leads us, and He does so continually, continually leads us. So I don't know. For me, I was just. I was just really moved by that picture of that traffic procession and my role in that and my place in that. And uh, not as a, as a conquered slave, but there to magnify the glory of the, of the one who leads that procession, which is God. So that was just a, a, a beautiful picture there. So then he talks about, and he, he continues with that metaphor with the spread and the fragrance of verses 15 and 16 for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things God takes the gospel to new places how it's spread he takes it through death that life is, is spread and he, he talks about him being the, the smell of incense that a you know, when he's thinking about, they're thinking about these, this incense, this aroma that was there burnt to, to, um, to the gods. I am this aroma. My life is given up in death as an aroma to God for the purpose of what? For the gospel to be spread amongst the nations. Three minutes here. I want to, I want to go to this last part. I he talks about who, who is sufficient. And here's, he uses this term at the end, and I'll, I'll leave us on, the, on this thought here. I didn't, I didn't elaborate as much as I could have on the, on the aroma of Christ peace because um, I want to get to this and, and, and next week move on to chapter 3. And some of these things, hey, when you go back and read it, you could dig in there a little bit more. The NIV says in this verse, he says, who is equal to such task? And we're talking about here, you know, who is, who is sufficient? In verse 16, NIV translate who is sufficient or who I'm sorry who is equal to such tasks. The answer, of course, is no one. It says we are we are we are not sufficient, but surely God is sufficient. Surely His word is sufficient. And He uses this term here that you don't find elsewhere. He says we are not peddlers of God's word. What does it mean to be a peddler? What does it mean to be a peddler? Let's take a time here. I'm just going to walk into this. A peddler was someone trying to pass on an inferior product. 
meaning he had to use other means to convince, talk into, because he could not rely solely on the quality of his product. So a peddler is someone who doesn't have he, – he can't sell the product on the merits of the product itself. He's got, to, he's got to peddle it to try to make it sound like it's more than what it is by convincing, by eloquent words, by other schemes, by, by what other means. But, and you could, you could apply this to a number of areas in, in church ministry, right? We, but the, the, what walks out of this is a tremendous truth. Paul is saying we don't have to peddle the gospel. It is sufficient for itself. That right there is, just think about how that spreads into how we approach ministry today. The fact that we feel like we need to somehow embellish, make it palatable, make it attractive, make it entertaining. We have to do all these things we feel is necessary to gain an audience so they could listen to us. And then we, we do the switch and bait. You know, we, we attract them here for wonderful food. We got fried chicken this week, and we got this and that. And, and we bring them in, and then we're, we're going to throw out them. We're going to try to catch them with the gospel because somehow the gospel needs help. We don't peddle the gospel, he says. The gospel is sufficient. And so many times we're tempted, goes back to his, the original thought, but we're tempted to try to, to, push, to push something because we feel, we feel the need, we, like the gospel needs support. We don't need fog on stage to attract, you know, to make the gospel more palatable. We do, every, we do all these things to make the gospel somehow to prop it up. He says we don't peddle. We are not peddlers like so many, so many others that they're dealing with. Peddlers of God's word but we're men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Wow. That is just an amazing, amazing picture he gives for us here. We're not peddlers, but preachers of God's word. We proclaim it, we live it in the sight of God and in the sight of man. It's, it's a shame that we have so many that... Our peddlers have infiltrated the church, is what he's describing here. So many peddlers have infiltrated the church, selling cheap imitations of the gospel, deceiving and tricking some into following. But unlike Paul, they lacked sincerity, as he speaks of in verse 17. Those who have a hard time proclaiming a self-sufficient gospel are those who do not live it. Those people are trying to sell a... I will have a hard time rather selling a, a self-sufficient gospel are those who do not live it. They haven't experienced it. Those who have ex- experienced it know that it stands on its own. As you experience the power of the gospel in your own life, not just in salvation but in obedience, then you will proclaim it as such as well. A little bit later in chapter 3, 2 Corinthians says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So, just, he starts with the gospel. I'm here to, to I went to Troas to proclaim the gospel, and he ends with, I'm, you know, we're not peddlers of the gospel, the gospel stands and sufficient in itself. What a, just all that rich picture in a few verses few verses you you see the open door you see the triumphal procession you see the sweet aroma and you see the the picture of the, of the peddler all that just in a handful of verses what a what a beautiful and, and, and rich passage to to look at today so thank you for your time it's been beautiful being in the word let's go ahead and commit this day to the Lord. father thank you that you're just looking for humble servants
Lord, we, we are humbly, humble slaves that are following our, our God, Lord, that is worthy to be praised. Thank you, Lord, that you've equipped us with the gospel, that we don't have to cheapen it, we don't have to manipulate it, we just are called to proclaim it. But what a beautiful truth that Paul describes here for the Corinthian church. What a beautiful truth for us as well. And though, and though this metaphor is, is for a church that had experienced some of these processions, Lord, for us, may, may, it, um, may it be significant for us as well, Lord. May we see that. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless the preaching of your word this morning as, as Brian uh, brings the word in second service. We commit this day to you. In your name we pray. Amen.